Hello and welcome to She's Creative with me, Claire Hodgson. Each episode, I chat to a different woman who works within the creative industries, discovering how she turned creativity into a career. My guest on this episode is comedian Amy Matthews. Amy is one of the fastest rising stand-up comedians in the UK, having been named Best Newcomer at the Scottish Comedy Awards in 2019 and in the top 10 comedians of the list's Hot 100. She's been featured on Radio 4's New Comedy and BBC Scotland's Breaking the News. Welcome, Amy. Hello, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Not too bad, thank you. Given... Given this year, all good. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Um, just to start things off, where did you grow up and what did your parents do for a living? Oh, so I grew up in a uh, seaside town called Leon Sea um, in Essex. Um, and it's, uh, it's literally sort of on the Thames estuary. Um, and it's a small sort of commuter town um, and uh, it, it's beautiful. I really, really love it and um, go back whenever I can. Uh, but it, it's strange actually, it's got, a, it's got a weird cohort of comics that live there for such a small town. Um, like Jade Adams and Rich Wilson lived there. I think Marcus Brigstock was there for a while perhaps, Phil Jupiter was there for a while. Um, uh, Sadie Hasler was there like it's such a small town and Phil Cornwall lived there for a bit and it's got this really strange concentration of comics and a really small postcode um but yeah so I, I grew up there and um only moved to Scotland three years three years ago um and my parents growing up my parents um did different jobs than they do now my dad was a printer he worked nights in a printing factory and my mum was a travel agent for Thomas Cook, RIP. Um, and uh, my, both of them now have slightly different jobs. My dad uh, surveys, uh, essentially surveys the countryside for, te- for trees that need work on. And my mum is a phlebotomist in the hospital. So she takes people's blood, she's a professional vampire. Um, <laughs> so yeah, they, it's, they've uh, just got lovely normal jobs. Um, and uh, it's, it's it's funny you obviously the sort of hack joke is that um comedians should get up and say oh yeah you know my parents are obviously extremely proud uh, insert sarcasm uh for choosing comedy as a career but genuinely mine have been so supportive <laughs> and very excited that i'm doing something that's not nine to five um mm-hmm. or you know i think it can go either way i guess you can you know have someone have guardians that are really excited about the fact you've chosen to do something uh, alternative and without any security uh, or you could have you know ones that say you should, you know you should probably take this sort of um, government approach of have a backup but uh, no it's uh, it's I've been very very lucky that they uh, they're really supportive and really excited and when I did my first full fringe run I mean, my I think my parents came twice um, whilst, you know, it's hard to explain to them that there are like 52,000 shows on. Go and see mm. someone who you haven't raised, um, <laughs> you know, go, go and see some other stuff. But no, they're so excited. They always seem, um, yeah, just very into whatever I'm doing. So I feel extremely lucky that although they, you know, aren't in creative jobs themselves and it's a world that's quite, 
foreign to them um, that they, yeah, that they're super into it and really excited about it. That's brilliant. Um, and when did you decide that you wanted to do comedy? It's a weird, it's hard to pin a, a moment on it. Like I think some you sort of get two pools um, of comics. You either get the kind of class clown who always knew that that's that was what they were going to do. Do you know what I mean? Like that's they capitalised on um, on something on a part of their character that they've clung on to since you know being really young. And then on the flip side, you get people that weirdly fall into it. And I suppose I'm the latter because although I've always loved comedy and watched a lot of stand up, even when I might have been too young to be watching stand up, I, um, yeah, I really came to it accidentally. I went to, um, I did my master's in uh, Edinburgh, uh, Edinburgh Uni, and uh, that was where I did my first gig in Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh Review, which is like their student comedy. Uh, association and it came about in an odd way because I so I always wanted to I wanted to do writing of some kind or something in the publishing industry English has always been my sort of vibe and um, I, I, I wrote a what was essentially a kind of sitcom pilot that I wanted to perform well I wanted to put on at the fringe um, as a kind of bucket list thing. I'd been to the Fringe a few times and loved it and knew that, you know, before I died, I wanted to do something mm -hmm. there. And I didn't know what, I had absolutely no idea. And it was a naivety that was so helpful and so useful because knowing the Fringe how I do now, I think I'd have been really put off, you know, that by the whole industry eyes on you and the sheer stamina required to do it and it's such a, it's an odd and wonderful time but I think if I'd have been more educated about what it was and what it entailed I probably wouldn't have done it um so I I wrote this sort of play with no intention of being in it at all I was just I wrote it directed it produced it and then as I um as I realized it was very difficult to get rehearsals done with a expansive cast or, you know, trying to pull people is really difficult. I thought, right, I'm going to give this a go myself. And if, if I don't think I can do it, I'll be very honest with myself and, you know, find someone. And uh, as it happened, it, I did it with um, a guy called Aniket who I went to school with and he, um, he and I did this two person play and I took it to the fringe for 10 days purely as a bucket list uh, box ticking exercise if you like and I just thought it'd be a really cool thing to do I was very I was very aware that I'd get older and more nervous mm -hmm. um, and I'd get older and have to take time off work and all of that kind of business so this was you know between uni and um, my master's and I thought right I'm just going to do it and whilst I was there my uh, my friend uh, from school who's a sketch comic he he came along and said, your script writing is essentially stand-up. He was like, you should, you should try stand-up. And I thought, as I was going into doing my master's in a brand new city where nobody knew me, <laughs> um, and I was sort of embracing a lot of change, I thought, what better time to, to do it? So I, um, I signed up to the Edinburgh Review, went to their preliminary meeting, and you know they said, well, we're going to put on a show at uh, Monkey Barrel Comedy, which is now my... Um, spiritual home uh and uh they i did my first gig there 
and uh, it went it went all right. So I was like, yeah, okay, let's sort of keep going with this. And it, it was a real snowball effect because I so I'd done that first gig for them, and then I was uh, I had a bar job there whilst I was at uni, um, and whilst I was in the building. Um, basically they used to do a Wednesday night new comedy competition called Top Banana. Top Banana is still running outside of 2020, obviously. Um, but it's no longer like a, a competition, but at the time it was, I had no idea. And basically they had a dropout and, uh, Chris Griffin, who's the venue manager there. He said, uh, I know you did your gig last week. Do you fancy filling in? And I sort of went, yeah, sure, no, that's fine. And then whilst I was in the wings, Liam Withnail, who compares the night, said, you know, next up in the competition is Amy Matthews. And I had the walk from the wings to the stage to process that I was like in this like mm -hmm. new act competition that I had no idea what I'd entered into. Um, and I, uh, by some miracle, won that. And the prize was to come back another week to do a longer spot. So it was like a complete snowball effect. And I feel like so much of you know, what, how I got into this has been like that. It's been a matter of diving into something with very, you know, little reservation and then something coming off the back of it. And that's, you know, that's how so many creative industries roll, I guess, yeah, you know, yeah. there's no um, career path uh, in, in strict corporate terms, you know, it just sort of happens all very accidentally um, and in strange ways. So yeah, that's how I got into it. It was, a, it was a, it was a strange, it's a strange route, <laughs> but um, I'm glad I did because yeah, I can't, I can't imagine doing anything else now. Um, it's uh, such a weird and wonderful thing. And I mean, this year has um, meant a lot of people have had to take stock of life and career choices, but I can't say, I can't say I regret any at all. It's been, I've been extremely lucky to have bits and bobs, you know, uh, drip feed feed in throughout this year in various various ways so yeah no it's been it's been good and a choice that I'm glad I made brilliant and when so you put on your show at the fringe what talk me through what that process was like so like I say it's the naivety and like complete ignorance as to how it worked and what an enormous um thing it is was so helpful <laughs> uh, because I basically what I did was wrote this thing uh, it was a two-person play and um, said right okay let's take this to the fringe looked into how I physically go about doing that and producing that and that entailed speak I was I've always been very lucky to be surrounded by creative people like I had people to talk to that had done it um and uh, that was really really helpful but more than anything I just the fringe have got a kind of uh how to, how to explain it a kind of info pack of of you know having an idea and how do I physically bring this to fruition and I, I went through all of that and it meant um essentially First and foremost, finding a venue. That's always the most anxiety inducing and stressful part of it for me in the run up. Um, and that I did it with just the tonic. And uh, basically it was a matter of very, it's a lot of it in the run up is boring admin. Um, so it was just, you know, getting a contract through for that, paying that off um, and then physically doing rehearsals with Annaket for this two-person play and we used like our obviously we were both at uni at the time or just graduated from uni at the time 
and we literally called in a favor with our old school and was like would you mind if we use the old theater room at like weekends <laughs> mm-hmm. and they were like yeah okay that's fine um and so we we did that because again like we neither of us had any money so we were just trying to save wherever we could but because it is expensive it's indisputably expensive to put on anything at the fringe um so my main outlet was or main outlay was uh paying for a venue so once I did that the rehearsal space we sort of wangled through our old school and then um the for accommodation that's sort of like your next thing and as anybody who has heard of the fringe like finding accommodation is just impossible it's so difficult and yeah it's so expensive difficult. so expensive oh my goodness it's crazy so the only thing I could afford um was a it was a pop-up hostel in a in an abandoned car park in Gorgie which is about an hour's oh walk my God. Of Edinburgh. <laughs> and it was in a shipping container with no windows oh wow and, um, not just a shipping container but a shipping container uh, with six bunk beds in so you shared a shipping container with 12 other people um, and yeah, it was 400 pounds for 10 days to sleep in a bunk bed in a shipping container with strangers um, a man who sang Russian opera in the mornings in his wife fronts and it was insane it was absolutely <laughs> mad um, and again it's the whole if you don't think too much about it and you don't know too much about it it's a gift because if you, I think, you know, if you sit down yeah. and think about it too much, you'd, no one would ever do it. Um, so yeah, that's, that was my, that's sort of methodically went through what I'd need to, to do to put it on. And it was venue accommodation. Um, I got flyers done and um, all of that business and lugged that up there and all of that. And then it was just a matter of, um, just playing it by ear like I I knew that most of the marketing done was just flyering for people so I would fly for hours a day and um just had it was it was really nice that on the first day I was I had like four people in on the first day and by the end of the run it was sort of regularly like 36 40 people and then you know and the beauty of doing it in the way that I did was I wasn't doing it for you know kudos or for a career move or to get an agent or for all the reasons lots of people in comedy not just do do it but sort of have to do it I was doing it because it was something I wanted to do with absolutely Mm -hmm. no pressure on it at all and the attitude that I went in with which is one that to be honest is more people should probably think about generally is that if one person turns up to my show, they've chosen that over 52,000 other shows that yeah. year. And like, that is incredible. That's so great. And it was, it was wonderful. Like it was really, really, really wonderful. And I got really lovely audience feedback and that was great. That was really, really great. And it meant that obviously off the back of it, um, you know, my, uh, my friend said, you know, you should give stand up a go. And that's obviously led to a much a bigger part of my life. But yeah, so that was the logistics of putting that on. And like I say, I've just, it was great to have the opportunity to do it 
before it was something I felt I had to do for my job or before I was aware of the scale and the um, industry eyes and the way it all works in, you know, it's essentially the, it's just the biggest showcase in the world, you know, for, for comedy. And I had no idea about any of that. And thank God I did. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was just, that was a, it's a weird, it's a weird way to start, but I'm really pleased that I did, did do that. And, um, you know, I, I did my first, uh, uh, the year, year after that, I don't think I was doing anything. I think it was just, might've been just uni stuff. I'm not sure. And then I did, um, the Edinburgh review show in the year that I was doing my dissertation for my masters. And then the year after that, which was last year, um, I did my first full, uh, full run, but doing just half an hour. So mm -hmm. I did, um, monkey barrel, uh, did, I did, did my first run at monkey barrel and it was great. So I was all forecast to do a 45 minute there this year, which obviously hasn't happened yeah. 2020, but, um, I think next year depend, I mean, so many things, uh, is a very boring thing to say now but there's so much uncertainty at the moment that no one can really plan anything um but if there is an industry still standing and if the fringe is even still going ahead um I think I will try and do my debut hour this year but uh, next year sorry um but yeah who knows it's just very much about playing everything by ear at the moment so yeah absolutely and um, your first, the show that you did, did people pay to see it or? The, um, as in the first stand-up show that I did. The, um, the play that you did. The play. So the play that I did, it was, again, I had no idea about the pricing structures or anything like that. I just, I had no idea at all. And um, so when I did that, it was ticketed um, and purely ticketed. So it wasn't pay what you want. Um, it was like, I think it was something like, Oh, I don't even know. I think it was like a fiver to get in and then like four pound concession or something like that. Um, and uh, that's how I did that. And then when I did my stand-up show, Monkey Barrel's model is fantastic. It's so, so good. So basically what it means is they, I think they put, it's either 80 or 90%, it's 90% of the tickets are available for pre-sale. Um, but I think they're all under £10, so they have to be under £10. And then um, once once all of those tickets are gone, there's 10% left that you basically are like on-the-door tickets. And those on-the-door tickets are pay what you want. So the idea being that if, you know, you're not in a financial position to be forking out even like £5 for a, a show and stuff, you are allowed to go in for free. If mm -hmm. you want to then additionally put more in a bucket on your way out for the performer, then that's great. You can do that. Um, and, and by the same token, even if you've paid a fiver, the idea being that they've kept prices low to sort of guarantee you a seat reservation. And then if you want to donate more to the performer on your way out in their bucket, then you absolutely can. Um, because obviously Pleasance, et cetera, it, it tends to be a slightly higher price bracket um the idea that monkey bell have had is that they've kept it low so that if people want to give more directly to the performer they can so um yeah and that was that was a great way of doing it again because it, it makes it so accessible but also it it's one of the few pricing models that favors the creative the performer 
and so much of the fringe that is simply not the case you know it is paying for a venue that just I've got a friend who sold out every single seat of his entire run put on two extra shows and sold those out and lost four thousand pounds wow yeah it's just and you say that to people that aren't familiar with how the fringe works and it sounds insane it is insane it's apps that is absolutely atrocious but it's not that shocking to comics like because that is just the way it's rigged at the minute which is unsustainable and ridiculous and the whole thing that you know you can't pay rent with exposure yeah and that's the that's the model that they're working on is the kind of well you should feel so lucky that you've um that you've been able to perform with us that uh it doesn't matter that you've paid four grand for the or lost four grand for the privilege should i say so yeah it's um it's a refreshing model that they've gone for and i really really hope it puts pressure on other venues to do the same thing um, because it is just, it's just better all around. It's better for performers. It's better for audience members. Um, and it would be a really nice thing to see take off properly. Um, but yeah, I feel so fortunate that I had, that I had that. Would you say that most people lose money in the French then? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's tricky because, um, the, people particularly people not in scotland um because i'm you know fortunate enough to be based in scotland and at the time in edinburgh i'm in glasgow at the moment but um for the fringe the last two fringes i've lived in edinburgh so i've paid my normal month's rent i haven't had to fork out seven thousand pounds to stay in a postage stamp airbnb um like so many people do i haven't had to pay a grossly inflated train ticket price for august and i haven't had to you know buy a prep every day because i'm between shows i've got a fridge with all my stuff you know just little things that really really make an enormous difference um that you know for someone traveling from outside of edinburgh is just ruining <laughs> it's mm-hmm. absolutely ridiculous and not just those costs but the i mean the venue fees are extortionate they are just so expensive um which again is why it's so um it's increasingly becoming difficult for working class people to do the fringe or people that aren't in a position where they can afford to lose money (laughs) no one's in a position where they can afford to lose money but um you know there are people that are in a better position to do that um and it's also the reason that you get a certain demographic doing well in those sort of big four venues you know um and it is it's just so hard for anyone particularly people starting out you know, and well, as I've proved, people starting out with no money stay in a shipping container in Gorgie. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. um, it's just, it's just so difficult um, to make that accessible for for people. Um, and yeah, like I say, it, it genuinely, yeah, lots of people slash most people do uh, lose money during fringe, and it's going to be. It's interesting as well, though, because I, my partner's a comedian as well. And for us, as people that lived in the area with a really, really great deal at Monkey Barrel, it was last year a huge cash injection for us. It was one of the things that 
kept us going for a while financially that this year it's actually been a huge financial loss for us like that's mm-hmm. been something that um is has been a gaping hole in our income but that is a real position of privilege to be able to say that because you know that is just simply not the case for so many people um and for so many people it is a a pr endeavor and it is a the idea being that you know you get picked up for this tour show or you get your run at Soho or you uh, get signed by this person, you get that thing commissioned. And that's the, that's the motivation for doing it for so many people. Yeah. Um, And that's why so many people are are willing to make that sacrifice. And it is, it is, it's so hard to explain to people outside of the industry because it sounds ludicrous and it, it takes that objective, um retelling to someone to realize that it absolutely is it's absolutely yeah mad that people that people do um fork out that much for it and lose that much money so often but you know i think if you can if you're in a position where you're filling a room you've got a good venue you've got a good you know or a reasonable um accommodation situation it's obviously possible to make mm-hmm. money it's just sadly the minority like it's i lost of course i lost money when i did my play um i think actually i might have broken even mm-hmm. just um and that's like a absolute yeah. you know that's a success that's a, a huge success um i can't even remember now i wasn't that hot on my spreadsheets back then but uh, mm-hmm. i think i think yeah it's 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 a, it's a strange strange endeavor uh, to to do and feel like you have to do but yeah like I said I feel extremely extremely fortunate that um, where I live and the venue that I have such a good relationship with has put me in a position where it is viable. When you when you started doing your your first stand-up gigs did you just get in touch with them on Facebook and say you know I want to get involved? So it's um, getting gigs is hard um, yeah. And it's something that's so different depending on where you live as well. Um, so for me personally, like I say, I sort of got my second and third gig accidentally by being in that venue at the right time. And then off the back of that, I contacted the stand um, because they were my sort of other local club at the time in Edinburgh. Um, and I got my red raw spot, uh, which is how, you know, lots of comics start out. It's that they have a five minute red raw um, night, which is still one of the best, if not the best new act night in the country. And it's why people travel from literally all corners of the UK to do it, to do five minutes of material in a room in Scotland. Um, and I got my five minutes there and then I they sort of went quite well and then off the back of that they've also got a venue in Glasgow and in Newcastle and it meant that I got spots in Glasgow and Newcastle um so again it's this kind of snowball thing that opportunity breeds opportunity and after I started getting those there that's when I started contacting you know Gilded Balloon I I I did tryouts at the comedy store that's how you get that same with Glee you do a tryout at Glee if that goes well then 
they've got venues in Cardiff and Oxford and God knows what as well. So it's very much that kind of snowball thing. And then just through meeting people, meeting people, you end up getting to know promoters and they know you. And it is this kind of, it is exactly what I said. It's just opportunity breeds opportunity. And Mm -hmm. it's about having sometimes simply the right person in the audience. So there are promoters and agents and all sorts of industry folk in these new act night, you know, audiences all the time. And uh, they're essentially, to to be uh, crass about it, scouting, I guess, to some degree. Um, And yeah, so it's, it's really difficult because as well, like in London, it's slightly different because a lot of the new the open mic circuit and the pro circuit are very separate and they sort of operate in their own circles and to jump across to those those pro circuits is as i understand it quite a difficult thing to do um and is extremely time consuming and you know all of those things are very different and again i feel lucky that my progression at places like the stand and monkey Bower, who were like they're so good at nurturing new talent and um that meant that i was getting paid for my work earlier than i think i would have done had i been mm-hmm. in london and as a result of that meant that i could then go to these other established clubs and go these are the spots i'm doing this is the level that i'm at book me yeah. please <laughs> um and that's you know there, there are so many different ways to do it and there's no right way to do it. And there's things happen at different paces for different. Another thing is like people that do well in competitions, you know, get sort of fast tracked in some way. Um, and there are, there are people, there are comics that are bitter about that, I think, or um, uncomfortable with that. And there's this idea that you've got to put in these uh lengthy hours and years before you've earned your stripes and I don't think that's necessarily true you know I think there are people you know sitting on mock the week panels that have 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 done it that way and are absolutely worthy of of being sat in that seat as much as someone who's been you know gigging around the country for years etc everyone has got a different path and there isn't like one one route and talking of how things are different in different areas as well like I did some gigs in Ireland last year and I was I was really struck by how artist-led it was so like all of the nights tend to be put on by comics and all the promoters tend to be comics themselves so again it's really about identifying where in your geographical location things work like how Mm -hmm. engaging how those things work and there's no way to do that without just going to see it going like regularly going to watch comedy and supporting live comedy is the only way you really understand how those things work um, in your particular area. But it is, I think it's such a difficult thing for somebody who just wakes up one morning and goes, actually, this is what I want to do. It's hard to give them a step-by-step forecast or strategy of how to do that because everyone's is different. And that's, that's not particularly helpful to tell someone. Um, but at this, like when there was a lot of, um, basically in August, I want to say August, perhaps July, 
uh, comedy had its second wave, if you like, of Me Too stuff, um, particularly coming out of the Irish scene and then that sort of uh, set wheels in motion for the UK more broadly. And um, it was it was so disheartening because I, I was watching all this stuff come out that was just, I mean, dreadful, obviously. But then in the comment sections of all these things on Twitter and Facebook, were all these women going, oh, I, I was thinking about being a comic, maybe not. This sounds like a horrendous environment. And, you know, if that's, if that's the outcome of people coming forward and being honest about problems in this industry, if the outcome is less women trying to get into it, that's a real travesty. Yeah. So I... I put a tweet and an Instagram thing out saying, if you are one of those women that has been thinking about it or, you know, thinking, I don't know where to start or, you know, I, uh, I'm intimidated by this environment and I don't really know if I want to get into it. All of it, you know, if you fall under any of those categories, get in touch and what I did is put together like an info document of the pack that I wish I'd had when I started. So it's got practical advice of exactly, as you said, like how to get gigs, the process for that, the sort of do's and don'ts, the, the things I wish I'd been told that make, you know, you feel better about a situation or all of that kind of stuff. Um, I put it all together in one kind of PDF. And, you know, if any of your listeners are in that category as well of thinking, is this something I want to do? So, like, tweet me or Instagram me and I will I just send that to people's email addresses um just because yeah it is and that's the other thing it is a slightly different process for young women and non-binary people to to want to get into it it's a slightly different road it's a slightly different journey just for so many different reasons um so I wanted to tailor it specifically for those demographics um so yeah if if they want to get in touch and want to want to read through that if they've been thinking about it's you know something they even if it's something they just want to learn more about how it works absolutely feel free to get in touch and I can send that over that's brilliant and um have you felt being a woman in comedy have you ever felt sexism or misogyny directed towards you so yes in the sense that um so audiences the way you are treated by audiences or various different audiences is um tangibly different from my male counterparts in the sense that i don't know any other men in comedy that have to think seriously about what they're going to wear before they go on stage mm. and how that might affect their performance. Um, you know, I think people think about, Oh, you know, is experiencing sexism or sexism in, co in comedy as clear cut as someone saying women aren't funny or, you know, making a sexist overtly sexist comment towards you. It's not that clear cut and simple. It's much more insidious and much more, um, ingrained like so, like socially ingrained that yeah i i have to think like i i don't wear a skirt on stage and i don't wear a dress on stage because i have a better gig when i am in a shirt and jeans and that might sound mad 
<laughs> but it's true. Like it's, it's yeah. absolutely true that I have a better gig if I am slightly more androgynous when I get on stage and, um, my gigs tangibly changed when I started opening with a joke that mentioned that I had a boyfriend. Mm. So I, cause what it does is a lot of weekend audiences are couples and there's um, sadly so much kind of, you know, internalized misogyny and the thing like we've all been guilt, like all women have been guilty of it at some point and so much of it happens subliminally as well and subconsciously. But when you, I'm, I am aware that I am a, a young woman uh, who wears makeup and, um, you know, has a, a certain way of putting myself together. And I know that that can be, particularly when you're up there on stage being funny as a young woman with a full face of makeup on, that is an intimidating thing for a lot of women. And um, that's a really sad state of affairs, but it's, it's, it's true. And the second, that, that's also the reason why I always wear my glasses on stage, because it's a kind of social cue of less threatening girl next door. Um, you are not a threat to me if you are, if you remove anything that could be read as um, social code for being attractive, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, so yeah, I always wear my glasses on stage or I tend to wear a shirt um, and I always wear trainers rather, or trainers or Doc Martens, you know? Um, and I, I started mentioning that I've got a boyfriend in my first joke. What that does is put the women in the audience at ease um because you feel like you've removed yourself as a threat and it relax because they feel like they can laugh it makes their you know in straight couples it makes their you know partner feel like they can laugh as well and that, yeah. might, that might sound like a, a far-fetched psycho um like a, psycho, a sort of social psychology thing to have discerned but it's so true. Like it is the second that I started doing that, it was easier. It was just easier. My gear, I felt less like I had to spend the first five minutes of a set proving myself. It felt like I could just get up and do it. And you know, that somebody to play devil's advocate, you know, someone might say, well, you know, Sarah Pascoe gets up in a skirt and sparkles. And um, I don't know, uh, Catherine Ryan is one of the most, overtly feminine and glamorous like that's her whole mo if you look at videos of them doing open spots on youtube they did it in vests and joggers it's because when they get to a point of success and recognition they transcend their femininity and become oh i'm going to see Catherine ryan i'm mm -hmm. going to see sarah pasco and it stops being about there's a woman on stage who I'm going to subconsciously or consciously set up some criteria that she's got to sort of wade through. Once they're at a certain point, they, they can sort of stop worrying about that, you know, and it's not until you reach that point that, you know, that's a, you can be in that position. And I'm fully aware that, you know, if I get up on stage in a, you know, 
I don't know, on a Saturday night where it's full of stag do's and couples, I can't, like, I, it, I am going to have a tougher gig if I'm stood there in a skirt, high heels, a full face of yeah. makeup, hair done. Because before I've opened my mouth, I've already asked a room that I, I've already said, I'm going to have to convince you actually that I can be here. And, you know, that's riddled with nuance and different reasons why that's a right or wrong thing to do. But for me, as somebody who wants to work and wants to, um, wants to have a good gig, I know that the only way that I'm going to do that is that that's my personal approach. There will be plenty of people that... Um, that disagree with whether that's a good or bad thing to do. Um, and I myself have those conversations with myself, but I just know that there are, in answer to your question is that, have I experienced sexism? It's not been someone coming up to me and going, what the hell are you doing here? You're a girl. It's mm -hmm. been, I have to behave differently to my male counterparts to do well, yeah. or at least get the same Respect. Uh, to do the same job as them and get the same respect yeah. exactly and i've again i've been i've felt fortunate that for the most part and again this isn't this isn't every gig i've ever done but for the most part the green rooms have been good broadly speaking that is not the case for i think the fact that i feel lucky that that's been my case it speaks volumes um I've also been in rooms where compares have, it's a compare or a host's job to set up the room for their acts. And there are, I've been in, I've done shows where that compare has made it so difficult for a woman to get up and do her job. And I don't mean, I mean that in a way that they've cultivated an atmosphere or a mood for the evening that means, you know, a, a boisterous mm -hmm. um, mask voice will do extremely well. Like <laughs> they just will. And that it means that someone, it won't mean that I won't do well. It'll just mean that I'll have to work a lot harder or I'll have to rethink material that I was going to do just before going on. <laughs> Because mm. they because of you know a certain way that an atmosphere has been cultivated by a host um, or compare, and by that I mean a, a male host or compare. Um, so yeah, it's it's not always as overt as has somebody been sexist towards me um, in a in very plain terms. It's about existing in a, a culture and an industry that is just not built at its roots for yeah. women comfortable and be easy, you know? And it's funny as well, sometimes, do you know what, weirdly, I think the most sexism I experience is often in compliments, which sounds like a maybe ungrateful thing to say, but I, um, I've, the amount of people that I've had come up to me and go, oh my God, you're, um, I find you even funnier than Sarah Millican. it's like, that's so loaded. Like what mm -hmm. you've just said, what you've said is, I think I enjoyed your set, but what the subtext of what you said is, in the, in the 
subset of women doing comedy, I'm going to compare you to the only other woman I've probably heard of and watched and say that you're better than them or I prefer you. And every single bit of what I just said is so problematic. <laughs> like it's so, so not a compliment. It's such an anti-compliment. And I had, I had a woman um, message me on Instagram once and say like with the best intentions say to me i loved your set at the stand last night i don't usually like women to be honest like mm -hmm. i don't think women are that funny and i don't like female comics but um but i actually really liked you and i messaged her back and said first and foremost thank you so much for reaching out to say something nice because so often people only make that jump to contact a performer if they want to be arsy about it you know but thank you so much for getting in contact to say something positive and well-meaning and um you know something that was just a nice thing to say in its most stripped down innocent terms but i also said just to let you know the reason i think she said something about the fact that you know most women only speak about i think boyfriends and periods or something and i asked her i said thank you for that compliment I would really, really love to challenge you to the next time you hear a woman or go and see a, a woman in a comedy club to, well, no, next time you go and see comedy, I'd like you to keep a tally of the amount of times a man speaks about his, are we allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah, yeah, go for it. The amount of times <laughs> a guy speaks about wanking or yeah. talk or... <laughs> you know, moans about his girlfriend or the old ball and chain. I want you to keep a tally of the amount of times that happens. And then you realize how gendered those prejudices are and that actually it's not all women talk about. They're speaking about experience, their lived experience, but because women's lived experience is such a marginalized narrative, it comes across as inherently gendered, even though they're just talking about their life in the same way that guys are. Mm -hmm. or the same way that you know i think men talk it like men talk about have historically spoken so much about sex in comedy and you know shock tactics with that and the second a woman does the same it's um it's jarring or it's uh they're making a statement or they're they're trying to be edgy and no they're not they they're doing exactly the same as what men have been doing for years, you know? Mm -hmm. And just because it's um, thankfully happening more now, you know, you're, you're hearing a lot more of that from women and from comedy on TV and in mainstream comedy that it's only now is it being sort of shown under quite a stark light. And you know, that I, I communicated that gently and diplomatically, hopefully, um, to that person who messaged me. And she said, oh yeah, no, that's actually, that's really, that's really interesting. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Like she wasn't, um, I don't know, t taken aback or anything. It was, she was really receptive, which I thought was wonderful. And it goes to show that there's so much that's internalized both, you know, for women and men that go and see, uh, see comedy that, you you can't ignore what you're up against every time you you stand up and just yeah. try and do what the guy next to you is doing you know yeah when you were saying that sometimes you have to kind of change your your script depending on what the host says do you completely memorize what you're going to say before you go on so the um 
Yes and no. So you, the way that co live comedy works is, um, so the best comics make it look like they're up there rambling and happen to be extremely funny whilst they're doing so. Uh, peek behind the magician's curtain, that is simply not how it works. Um, there are, you have new material nights and, um, and sort of weekday gigs, if you like, for comics to try new ideas that they've been thinking of and um, jokes and punchlines around those ideas that they want to try and learn and um, f sort of uh, distill into tight jokes, you know, in their purest form. And then once you've done those and you know the ones that work, you formulate them into sets. So sets tend to be five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, or half an hour, broadly speaking. Um, so when you start out and you're doing tryout spots, they tend to be five to seven minutes. Then when you're a new act, but you're doing weekend slots, it tends to be 10 minutes and new material slots tend to be 10 minutes as well, because any longer than that is a long time to sit through if it's going very badly. Um, and 15 minutes tends to be a sort of opening or a sort of middle section slot. And then your headline slots or some opening slots are 20 minutes to half an hour. Uh, that's how it works in the UK anyway. It's slightly different in America, but um, that's so you sort of need to formulate sex sort of sections of jokes or sets of jokes that you know will work within those time parameters and not just work within those time parameters but are cohesive and related you know unless you're a one-liner comic and even then they have to do it to a certain degree you can't rattle off punchline set up punchline set up punchline. that are all completely disparate you know the the stand-up that we watch and enjoy now is has narrative and it has um you know very uh clear-cut structures in the way that we um we sort of perform it and listen to it and so in answer to do i memorize them I, I yes i know my i know the jokes that i'll tell and i'll know the setups and i'll know you know the um, maybe the order in which i'll do them but when i say i sort of have to re sketch how I'm going to do that in my head before going on sometimes what that will mean is thinking that punchline will not land in this room so what will I do instead that isn't going to completely throw off the other stuff I've got planned so it's essentially like having if you imagine having a sort of cork board of all these different bits ideas jokes punchlines that you know you've you know work and um are sort of in your arsenal what ones can I put in what order that I think will give me the best chance of doing well in this room that's the kind that's what I mean by sort of having to rewrite those things in in my head and particularly as well like if I you know if someone if a host is doing crowd work and um, a specific thing or a specific job comes up and you think oh, I've got something related to that. It might involve you having to cherry pick that and slot it into something, you know. You just basically want to always be giving yourself the best chance of having a good gig because not just for personal um, uh, progression reasons, I mean that as the better you do, the 
more you're going to put trust, you know, the more people are going to go, oh, yeah, she was good. I really enjoyed her stuff. And the ramifications that has for the way people perceive women in comedy is huge mm-hmm. because it's, there's a, there's sadly this weird like responsibility that I think a lot of women feel in comedy that when they get up and, and perform, they're not just having to prove themselves. They're having to prove that an entire gender is, is capable of doing this. Um, and that's, again, that's changing more and it's changing the, the only way that women will stop feeling that pressure and that responsibility is when they don't just make up one on the bill as well. So if, if I'm the only woman on the bill, I then have to represent women doing comedy, which is an enormous and impossible ask and an unreasonable, you know, and I can't do that essentially. If I am on a bill that's all women, I am no longer having to, whether I do really well or do really badly, it doesn't matter because I am no longer talking for women in comedy. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm mm-hmm. talking for me. And whether I do really well or badly is a reflection on how I did in that room rather than whether women as a whole are funny or not. Cause that's preposterous. <laughs> like, it's absolutely ridiculous. So yeah, I think the more that there's balance on bills, the better that that aspect of it is as well. Mm-hmm. And um, you were saying like, you know, when you started things like snowballed and you got more and more gigs, where, at what point do comics start to get paid? Like how much of the initial stuff is just doing it for free? Yeah, so this is, um, this is another thing that there isn't gonna be, a, every single comic that you ask will have a different answer mm-hmm. because of what their local club is because of how you know they how quickly they progress or not or you know what promoters they've got a good relationship with and what they pay and if they pay there's there is so there are so many different answers to that my personal one if I really think about it I don't, oh goodness, I have no idea. I mean, my first, the first bit of money I ever received for telling jokes was I did a, um, a tryout spot for, there's a gig that's run in, on the sort of outskirts of Glasgow in Glad Cafe called um, Cross, Cross My Laugh, I think. Um, and that's run by Fergus Mitchell and he gave me 15 pounds to cover the cost of my train to get there. Mm-hmm. That was the first time I ever physically received, um, no, it was 10 pounds. It was 10 pounds. <laughs> um, and, uh, that's the first bit of money I ever got for doing jokes. Then after that, I don't know, I'd imagine it would be the stand that paid me first. Um, but again, it's sort of hard on a timeline. I think it was, a, it was a good few months before I got paid for anything. But that, I mean, if you ask a lot of comics and open spots, I am very, very lucky that, that that's me having really lucked out there because there are people that don't earn their first, like earn their first bit of cash two years in. Yeah, maybe. wow. Um, and... And that's being 
realistic that's not being worst case scenario that's yeah. being realistic um the other thing as well is you sort of you you reach a point where when it's your job it gets easier and people are more willing to pay you but it's certainly not a given um especially because okay so for as an example i did a spot as a trial spot for glee um in cardiff um and it was a it was like a 60 quid thursday night um sort of absolute bottom of the rung are you a comedian do you do what you say you do kind of thing Mm -hmm. um and to do that uh i was like i don't want to lose i want to lose as little money as possible um so i got a mega bus from edinburgh to glasgow another mega bus from an overnight mega bus from Mm. glasgow to Birmingham I got a train from Birmingham to Bristol another train from Bristol to Cardiff oh god my 15 minute spot crashed on the floor of somebody that I knew at uni went back and did that exact same journey all the way so I had a 36 hour round trip on a mega bus and trains that spanned the whole country to do a 15 minute spot (laughs) um, and managed to break even um and to say that to anybody outside anybody who isn't a comedian that just that sounds like the you know ravings of a lunatic but it's it's like every gig you do and when you progress is almost like an interview and when you say would you do that journey for the job of your dreams the answer for most people would be yeah probably yeah and um, it's just that you have to re-interview pretty much constantly <laughs> when you're when you're doing comedy. So you don't just you don't get the job and then you um, and then you know you're set. You have to not only do keep doing those things, but you progress and you have to stay in the sort of um, you have to you have to stay relevant. Essentially, you have to be a name that promoters start to recognise. And um, to do that, you've got to be gigging all over the country and Mm -hmm. you've got to gig constantly and you've got to be trying to get gigs constantly. And um, and it's a again, it is a real snowball effect because there comes a point where you can pass some of those administrative tasks and those connections onto an agent, which is great. But to get one, you have to be doing those things. You know, it's a real kind of in order to get more of this stuff and to do better you have you sort of exponentially it gets easier because you have to work hard at every level and then the, the more you progress the more people there are sort of on your side if you like there are promoters that are willing to vouch for you there are other comics that are willing to vouch for you there are agents that can represent you and that kind of thing but yeah it's a lot of it's a lot of working for free um at the beginning definitely it's a lot of working for free and then there's some working for free when it's you know your job as well but you also learn to respect your time and your talent to to a degree so that you can say actually no I'm not going to do that for Mm -hmm. no money you will pay me for that because I I'm worth that now I've proved I've done I've earned my stripes (laughs) Is there, is there like a going rate, like an industry standard for gigs? This is the thing as well. Like, absolutely not. Um, and 
I mean, it's gonna, it depends on so many factors. It depends on the, depends on the club and it's how reputable and uh, it's the club is and how, what its financial position is as well. Um, if it's gonna be, sometimes it's like bucket splits. So if it's like a small, say for example, you're doing an open mic night or, or a new material night run by maybe another comic or a promoter that is essentially a big comedy fan and wants to put on comedy, they might do a bucket split or something at the end, you know, so everyone, they get a split of whatever tickets are, are, are sold. And then on the flip side, if you're doing, you know, weekend comedy, I mean, I have performed a, I'm trying to, you know, give some kind of indication. So I've done a, a 15 minute slot from anywhere between 20 quid to 350 pounds. Uh, like, and I've probably mm -hmm. done the same jokes <laughs> um, yeah. for that money. And it will depend on, uh, the other thing as well is it depends on whether, if you're doing, if you're opening a Sunday, that's going to pay considerably less than if you're opening a Friday and a Saturday. Because it's all relative. Like if they're, like Friday and Saturday nights, they're going to make the most money. They're going to have the biggest audiences. And it's also going to be the hardest, it's going to be a harder job. Like mm -hmm. to get up and perform in front of 300 drunk people you should be being paid more than on a sleepy sunday you know there's yeah. there's a lot of that as well but it really really does depend like there is no fixed rate there's no minimum wage there's no you know nothing like that and also depending on what you're doing what so when you get booked for radio and tv stuff there's like there's specific names for what these are that i can never remember but there are like two ways of paying comment there's like either fixed rate which is regardless of who you are, whether you're Frankie Boyle or somebody who's just started comedy, you'll get paid the same, like because you're getting paid for that thing you're doing. There are other things and it's usually slightly more relevant when it's um, either like hosting jobs and stuff like that, um, that you'll get paid on essentially who you are. So somebody who is more developed and more established and possibly, I don't know, more famous might get paid more than somebody doing it who isn't those things. But again, that doesn't really happen for live comedy spots. That tends to happen more in like TV and radio if it's somebody getting mm -hmm. some commission or broadly speaking, the spots available in live comedy are fixed. So, you know, regardless of who does the... I don't know, middle 15 at Gilded Balloon, whether they're somebody who's been on the telly loads or whether they're, you know, somebody who really hasn't, they're getting paid the same amount. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, yeah, it's, there's no, there's very little consistency, to be honest, yeah. between places. And, um, and that's why it's often a trade-off as well between, is this worth my time? Is this financially viable? Is this going to breed opportunity to then go back and do a better paid spot at another time there's so much to sort of take into account financially when you're when you're sort of making those decisions but yeah it's um there's really no one size fits all at all would you say that the tv and radio gigs are typically the best paying ones yeah um uh, as a general rule of thumb yes that being said i've done 
24 hours writing for a radio show and then appeared on the radio show for an two, three hour record for the same money as I've gotten for a 10 minute spot at an established club. Mm. So again, there's, it really depends on, it's the same thing as with the clubs really. Like if you're, if the production company or the channel have a lot of money and have a big budget, that will be reflected in what you're being paid. So it's going to, it really depends on um, what the job is, who you are, who's producing it, what the budget is of the channel or those producers, you know, it it is just, it's, it's probably an unsatisfying answer to give you. I'm sorry, but it's just, it's just that it does completely depend. Mm -hmm. And do you think having an agent helps negotiate all of that kind of thing? Definitely, definitely, definitely. Because they, um, they do all of that legwork for you. And they, what's sometimes hard as well is that when you are a performer wanting to, so often you feel like you have to, you want to, sorry about all the ambulances, by the way. I live oh no, very, I'm the same. I'm right next to a main road and there's so oh, many buses going by. No, but. that's honestly. <laughs> but yeah, um, having, having an agent really, it means that they take a lot of that on. They are essentially your, they do all of that for you, which is amazing. And um, it also puts a lacquer of, or a buffer of professionalism and business between you and the person making the thing. So you don't have to be your own business person as well. You have somebody to do all of those slightly more, um, uncomfortable but I don't know why I I think it's a cultural thing as well Mm -hmm. we just don't like to say we are worth this much financially pay us this much money like I just think in the UK we're a bit icky about talking about money and definitely yeah like we're just bad at it particularly creative people like Mm -hmm. we're so bad at going no, you actually need to pay me for that. And not just pay me, but pay me well for that. You just don't hear that like, at all. You hear those conversations when you watch The Apprentice and, you know, it's business bods and corporate environments. It's not, you know, it, it's not mad to go, absolutely not. You need to pay me more for that or it's worth more than that. To say that as a comedian or an artist or a poet or as a writer, for some reason we're, we find terrifyingly embarrassing or uncomfortable I don't know it's all very weird but yeah having um, my agent does an incredible job of that um she's fantastic and um the other thing as well that it does is it means that your like your agent and your agency have um have their own relationships with people in the industry you know there might be a particular producer or channel or whatever who works closely with your agent or your agency so it just means that that door is then opened up for you and and it, it is that exactly what happens it is just that snowball thing that the, mm-hmm. the more the more of the ladder you climb the, the you know the more opportunity there is just by default almost um but yeah it's it, it does really really help with those sort of conversations and those chats what was your experience like getting an agent um how did it come about so i um during my fringe run last year i had 
five different agents come or five agents that I knew about come and see me I'm sure there might have been others that I didn't know about but um there were five agents that came to to watch my show um that, that then got in contact with me to sort of say we saw you we like you we're interested kind of thing and then once they um once they sort of made contact what tends to happen is you have a preliminary chat slash meeting they're usually under the suspicious guise of a coffee mm-hmm. um and you sort of go for a coffee or a drink or a, a chat with with them and you sort of you're essentially sort of um gauging each other's interests motives all you know all of those those things um and what usually comes out of that initial chat is a great really pleased that we had this talk we'll keep an eye on each other kind of kind of thing and then um throughout the throughout the year i had intermittent contact with all of them um some of them just straight up said we're actually at a point where we physically can't take anyone else a roster anymore so we'll we'll keep the communication open but just so you know we we can't do this right now um other people so there are different ways agencies take on new talent and like one of the um one of the agencies that were interested in me run a lot of gigs as well so they booked me for those um various ones around the country and in ireland and stuff as well um just so that i think it's almost like testing you out in different environments so i had a lot of that from one of them from another one um i had just a lot of like keep keep me posted on what you're doing. Um, they booked me on a, on a, a new material night that they do as well. So again, it's it's sort of they just want to see you in lots of different guises and environments, I guess. And then for my for the agent that I have, I've, I'm with um, lovely Claire Nightingale who works at PBJ, and she um, she got in contact. She'd contacted me originally after she'd seen my show. And I think she like messaged me on Twitter or something and said, you know, saw it, really liked it. Great. Um, and that was that. And then she, I did the stand during the pandemic were doing live shows um, that were streamed to like everyone. And I did, I sent in a video for that. And she messaged me after that and said, I really liked your stuff on the live show. Can we have a talk? So I had a sort of chat with her um, and we sort of, she just sort of wanted to get to know a bit more about what my ambitions were, what my interests were, what, you know, what visions I had for the coming few years, where I saw my fringe shows going, all of that kind of stuff. Um, And uh, she, yeah, she basically said after a few chats like that, I think we should do this. I think, you know, it's a, it will be a really good relationship. And that's the other thing as well. Like you need to, you need to be sure both ways. Mm-hmm. You, you need to make sure that this is someone you want to represent you as well. And she's, she's lovely. She's just great. And um, so yeah, that's, that's how that came about. And then that involved contacting the other agents that I'd had preliminary chats with and, and communication with and just saying, just to let you know, I have actually found representation. Thank you so much for the opportunities you've given me and um, for even, you know, uh, mm-hmm. taking an interest and um, yeah, just sort of saying thank you, but I, I, I probably won't need to have those, um, those chats with you yeah. going forward. 
um and that's that's sort of how it how it went for me really yeah that's really helpful to know yeah and it's um, it's it's a weird it was weird as well because the timing was mad like to be I wouldn't have imagined that I'd have been signed in a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> because it just, what, what was funny as well is, um, I, I mean, I'd, I'd spoken to some agents that had said, we aren't taking anyone on at the moment full stop because yeah. of everything that was going on. Um, so yeah, it was uh, very unusual timing, but great, like really, really great. And it, cause it's such an odd, um, I guess it, an agent and a client's relationship is such a unique one in the sense that you're sort of business partners in a way, as well as they're your kind of mentor. They're your sort of um, emotional support as well. They, they're your friend. And so it's, it's such a strange and like unique relationship that you have to be so sure, like on both, both parties Mm -hmm. have to, so sure that this is going to work because there's so many different avenues and so many different essentially so many different roles that they play in your life professionally and personally that you have to be very very sure that they're the right person and and not just the agent but the agency as well agents um and agencies specialize in different things you know if you're if you're a live comedian and you don't really have much interest in doing TV, radio, presenting, whatever, there will be agencies that are absolutely brilliant and are perfect for live stuff, but don't do as much in those areas. Vice versa, if you're a comic, but really you want to sort of be going into acting or presenting, there will be agencies that do that slightly better mm-hmm. than other. You know, there are, there are different, different things, different, specialisms i guess for different agencies um so it's, it's worth sort of getting to know what those are as well um and again it just puts you it's about putting yourself in the best position to to do to do yeah. what you want to do brilliant and um yeah just to finish things off yeah. if you could summarize any just general advice or tips that you have for someone starting out that wants to do the same kind of thing don't do it for yourself don't do it for anyone else's um approval or if you've got an idea of someone's career that you want uh don't do it for those reasons like if that's why you're doing it you probably won't be very happy (laughs) um i think you have to do it because it's something that you enjoy if you enjoy writing and you enjoy performing and you enjoy going to gigs that's the only good healthy reason for wanting to do it um, and the other thing as well that I, I always say is unless you are comfortable or unless you're willing to learn to be comfortable with your peers and your colleagues getting opportunities that you aren't getting, you won't be happy. Uh, you like to, there is, I think I, I made a decision a long time ago to be um, to be genuinely and authentically, enthusiastically pleased for my friends and colleagues when they do well. And when you learn to do that, it's it's so great because you get genuine, unadulterated joy when someone who isn't you 
is doing really well. And I think unless you can learn to do that, or at the least be comfortable with professional envy, professional jealousy, which mm-hmm. are valid as well, like that is human and, and, and valid, unless you're comfortable with that, you won't be happy <laughs> um, because because of the way it works because there isn't a career path for people because everyone does things at different rates and in different ways until you are comfortable with that you will probably have a miserable time so if you do it for yourself and if you're happy for other people then it's a career that you can you are probably well equipped for um but yeah they're the they're the things that i would would say and like if there's women listening that genuinely don't know where to start and they have been thinking about it please tweet me or instagram me and i will send you that document that i put together um because it's got yeah lots of boring logistical things that are helpful and more like sort of the whole tips and trips tricks thing as well um but yeah i think unless you're also don't just don't expect stuff to happen overnight i think you've got to be like with any creative industry you've just got to be very comfortable with rejection and comfortable with patience Mm -hmm. (laughs) or being patient um and that getting up telling jokes and getting rounds of applause is about five percent of the job (laughs) the other 90 95 percent is admin and mega buses (laughs) so so, you know unless and most of the time that 90 that five percent makes the 90 95 percent worth it that was comedian amy matthews you can find her on twitter and instagram at amy f matthews i'll be back with another episode in two weeks if you like this episode please subscribe and rate and review on apple podcasts you can find the podcast on social media at she's creative pod and i'm on twitter and instagram at underscore claire hutch if you want to support the podcast i have also set up a coffee page for small donations at ko-fi.com slash she's creative pod see you next time